All right, so around Thanksgiving, we were able to do a couple of podcasts where we had a discussion with my father, who was a former homicide detective with the LAPD. And now, just in time, well, probably right after Christmas, <laughs> I wanted to be able to do this podcast with my mother, Robin, who has been a nurse for, well, I'm not going to say how many years, because she'll <laughs> throw something at me, but has been a very accomplished nurse, uh, both in the United States and abroad in the missions field. And we're going to talk a little bit uh, with her today about some of her experiences being a nurse during COVID, uh, some of the craziest stories <laughs> that she has either um, you know lived through or, or experienced, um, and also uh, some of the things that you need to know. Like what what are some of the medical skills you need to know for a variety of conditions? We'll we'll discuss um, surviving the zombie apocalypse because let's mm-hmm. face it, if you don't know how to do basic first aid, uh, the zombies are going to get you. I've seen Walking Dead. I'm somewhat of an expert on this, and and we all know that'll happen. Plus, having worked, uh, gosh, for decades now as an OB nurse, uh, she's going to answer the age-old question of, what do you need to know as a guy right now to deliver a baby in a survival situation, having only uh, a pocket knife, a handkerchief, and ACDC's greatest hits, right? So all of that will be answered on this podcast brought to you by Good Ranchers. Okay, so Robin. Or as I as I prefer to call you, mom. <laughs> Thank you for being on. Thanks for having me here. All right. Well, okay. So, are are you are you comfortable telling the audience how long you have been a nurse for now? About forty five years altogether. Forty five years as a nurse, and that's been like multiple state. Obviously, not just at one hospital. You've worked at multiple hospitals. You've worked mm-hmm. overseas. What um, what got you into nursing in the first place? What what made you want to be a nurse? Well, I was always interested in medical things growing up. And then when I was a senior in high school, 17 years old, um, oldest of four kids, and we didn't grow up wealthy. We were, you know, rather poor. Um, My dad suddenly became very, very ill and was in UC Davis Medical Center. We actually didn't know if he was going to live or die. And so I uh, walked in and found out I had enough credits to graduate from high school. So I did. And I took turns trading off with my mom, taking care of my little brothers and sisters and and then going down and staying with my grandmother and helping take care of my dad. And that's when I decided, I mean, I thought at that time, you know, do I want to try to be a doctor or do I want to be a nurse? And I saw what a difference a nurse could make and how a patient felt and just the little things that they can do, you know, along with obviously some of the major things. But that's when I decided that uh, I really wanted to be a nurse. And so I graduated. I had already graduated. And uh, right after my dad got out of the hospital and, and uh, he survived, thank goodness, I went off to uh, nursing school. Uh, started out in college, got into a nursing program. And uh Proceeded from there. I ended up in the middle of my education, getting married, having a baby who was <laughs> sitting across from yeah. me now. <laughs> See, you, you yeah. uh, interfered in my education. I actually, <laughs> um, actually, I had just been awarded a scholarship to study a full ride scholarship. Uh, to study in a foreign country. Then I found out they were going to send me to Cali, Colombia <laughs> in the late 70s, early 80s. Oh, yeah. What, um, could, what could go wrong? Yeah. What could go wrong with that, right? Um, here I was, this naive little blonde 
yeah. you know, tiny hundred pounds soaking wet. Little so gal. were you going down there to study nursing or Spanish? Uh, both. 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 Okay. Yeah. So, you, so yeah. you, but, you, uh, you missed out on being Pablo Escobar's nurse because of me. Yeah, my bad. <laughs> I think, son, you probably saved my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do what I can. I do what I can. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so anyway, uh, I ended up getting married instead yeah. and uh, having this baby and yeah. uh, then Going back to school, when you were three weeks old, I was back in school full-time and uh, working full-time. So were you working, so at that point, you weren't you weren't a registered nurse No, yet. I was working as a nurse's aide, nurse okay. assistant. Yeah. Um, I went through a quick program and finished getting my LVN, which is kind of a, a step up from just being a nurse's aide. That's a licensed uh, vocational or licensed practical nurse. And then from there, um, your dad and I moved down to Southern California. He was... Uh, hired by LAPD, yeah. and uh, I got to finish my RN down there. So, what what are the different what are the different levels of of nursing? Like, I don't, I mean, so is when when you go into the hospital, obviously, like we've all kind of heard of like the candy stripers or whatnot. What's your those are volunteers, like volunteers yeah. that are helping. Mm-hmm. So, what are what are the so candy striper volunteer helping out? Yeah. How does how does it go up? Then there's a certified nurses aide. Okay, and these are ones that uh, bring you water, take your vital signs, you know, change beds. Things like that. Then yeah. the next step up is LVN or LPN, depending on uh, what area of the country you're in. And they are licensed and able to like give medications, start IVs, uh, do a number of things, dressing changes, things like that. Then um, above that, our next step up would be a registered nurse. And used to be able to be a registered nurse after... Um, before you actually got your bachelor's, now they're recommending everyone get their bachelor's degree along with it. Higher ed wants their cut. <laughs> I suppose, you know, you, you really need art appreciation to uh, be a nurse, but, <laughs> but hey, <Yeah. laughs> uh, it doesn't hurt. Yeah. Um, so anyway, next would be a registered nurse, which uh, has a, a lot more... Um, a lot more options of what you can do, areas you can work in, uh, things you can be trained for. Um, after I got my RN, I went to work in an intensive care unit, and they started an open heart surgery program, cardiac ICU. And so the patients that would have like cardiac bypass surgery, things like that, would just come up the elevator right into our ICU, and we would uh, – Take it from there. Well, let me, let me ask you this question: where, where does where does like nurse practitioner fall in? in that's that's a, an additional additional training beyond registered nurse, and they often work at like at a doctor's office. Um, they'll see patients that come in instead of the doctor seeing absolutely everybody, but sure. they work under a doctor's license. Okay, still, so, so so let me let me see let me see if I understand this. So when you're um, we are an L, LVN or LPN. Um, so are you, you're considered a nurse at that point, you're a licensed nurse, Mm -hmm. but would you say that what most people think of as a nurse when they go in the hospital is, is the registered nurse? Generally speaking, I would say so. And registered nurse. So if, if you're a, if you're an LPN, you're kind of limited on like, what's the difference on the limitations on what you can do from an LPN to an RN? Well, LPN is usually not not in charge. Usually a registered nurse is in charge. Uh, registered nurses can do other procedures, assist with, with uh, more complicated procedures. They can give IV medications. Okay. 
an LPN, LVN uh, doesn't normally do that. They can give IV fluids, but not IV medications. And so when you're in it, so you talked about the first, the first thing you worked in was ICU. So the intensive mm-hmm. care unit. So these are people that are, are they in critical condition, but stable or how, how does that work? Like, yeah, how sometimes do you not so the, stable. How do you get to the ICU? <laughs> <laughs> it takes a lot of extra training. So okay. when uh, I actually had started working in an ICU when I was an LVN back in the day, yeah. back a long time ago, you could do that. You couldn't do as many things as the RNs, but there was a lot that you could do. So I had started there. So I was familiar with a lot of the things around the ICU and there are different types of ICU. There's a cardiac ICU, trauma ICU, uh, like medical surgical ICU, where you would uh, take cases of more complicated surgeries that come out and they come to your unit. Okay. So there's different variations of that. So how long, how long did you work in ICU for? Several years. Now, what did you like about ICU? Like, did you want to go to ICU? Very much. Okay. So why? I still miss it. Yeah. I like ICU because you have like one or two very critical patients, patients that really need your full attention, um, interventions, medications, uh, lab work, things that, that constantly need to be done that you're watching for. And I see with cardiac ICU, I had learned how to use the, what's called an intra-aortic balloon pump. We put in Swan-Gans catheters and just about everybody back in that day. Yeah. What, what uh, is that? Uh, <laughs> Talk to me like I'm six. <laughs> <laughs> Similar, boy, the, the most simple way I could put it, it's like an elongated IV, I guess you'd say. It's like a little tiny catheter that goes uh, threaded through a uh, person's vein. And goes around and actually sits in the heart and gives you information about the pressures. Oh, you know, wow. the, the pressures, you know, the blood passing through the heart, things like that. Can also give you information about um, oxygen levels and things. Um, I have not worked in cardiac ICU for several years now, so I am certain that there are it's changed, yeah. many new things that, that I am well, not let, aware of. So you, you worked ICU area. for several years. What, what were some of the other, what, what's the proper ner- terminology? Would it be departments? You can say departments, sure. Okay, so so yeah. you worked ER for a little while, right? Just a little bit. All right. Yeah. Did you not like it? Because so obviously, when, <laughs> when we're looking at when we're looking at you know the the TV shows, right, mm. um, about hospitals or whatnot, they they're mm. they're usually always focused on two areas within the TV shows, well, maybe three, but it's it's surgery, right, and the ER, right. Mm. That's so. You worked ER for a little bit. What do the movies get totally, I'm sure they get a lot of things wrong, but is it everyone just running around going, I need this stat or a lot? Yeah, <laughs> there is a lot of that. It's funny yeah. when you do watch a program that's a medical type program and you yeah. see things that are done. Usually they have pretty good advisors and, okay. and they try to be very accurate, but every now and then you'll see like someone that's supposed to be a doctor playing the part of a doctor, listening to someone's heart and they forgot to put the stethoscope <laughs> in their ears. <laughs> <laughs> or little things like that every yeah. now and then you kind of chuckle about. But uh, there are times when I've been at work and I, I look for the cameras and I'm thinking, I, I must be on a TV show. Yeah. So where's the camera? This is just too wild to so be real. It, it, would you say, so you've worked, you've worked ICU, you worked ER for a little bit, and mm-hmm. you've also, you worked OB for quite a while, quite a while, just coming up on 30 years here, 30 soon. years in OB. So that's yeah, been, almost. that's been kind of the main, so we're working delivering babies, right? So here's my question out of the, out of those three, were, were there any other departments that you work? Actually, one of my very favorites was trauma ICU. Okay. Trauma ICU. And uh, that was fantastic. Uh, I think the reason 
I liked it so much is because the place that I worked at that time, we had such an incredible team of nurses, doctors, such a cohesive group working together that it it was amazing. I always had told people, you know, if I'm ever in a car accident or any kind of an accident, I don't care where I am in the country or in the world, get me here. Yeah, yeah. And it's nice to feel that way about the the place that you work. Now, would you but, say, so I, and I'm, I'm going to bring this back to Hollywood just a little bit because it's that's the frame of reference for a lot right. of people. Either they've been in the hospital or they watch something on TV. And and a lot of times in, in the TV shows and whatnot, you get this like almost kind of um, strange dynamic between doctors and nurses. Mm-hmm. And, and the only way I could kind of equate it sometimes, even though it's, it's different, but if I had to equate it something from a military experience, you have the NCOs <laughs> and you have the officers, right? <laughs> and um, the, the joke, the joke among NCOs, especially senior NCOs was they think they're running the mm-hmm. show and, and we think that's adorable and we like to let them <laughs> think that, but, uh, but obviously we respected each other's roles mm-hmm. and what we did. It, is there as much tension between doctors and nurses in real life as you see kind of on on tv this has been a very interesting conversation and it just reminds me that i want to stay out of the hospital and one of the best ways to do that is to eat right and if you go to goodranchers.com and use promo code nick you're going to get 15 percent off a whole lot of rights that's right they've got the best american raised beef poultry pork and wild caught seafood not to mention the fact that you're going to get 15 percent off all kinds of gifts that they have available that's merch that's boxes of meat all of it all the way up until december 31st because let's face it some of you did not get presents in time but good ranchers is there to make sure that you're squared away so goodranchers.com promo code nick 15 percent off gift boxes there's there's merch opportunities there's all kinds of stuff go check out the website get the discounts 100 percent satisfaction guaranteed with goodranchers.com it depends on where you work hospitals tend to have personalities even units icus different units tend to have a personality some of them work like clockwork and some of them there's a, a lot of angst going on um most places I've worked, there is definitely a hierarchy, you know, with the doctors and the nurses. And, you know, as there should be to some degree, I suppose. But most of the time we get along pretty well. I think they understand that we're their eyes and ears when they're not there. Mm-hmm. And honestly, they're not there very often. It's us. Do you, do you mm-hmm. find that um, Do you find that new doctors can come in a little bit cocky and maybe not respecting the role that nurses play and then over time? Or... Do they come in kind of knowing they don't know as much as it they think they do? It depends on really? the individual, yeah. I've been in uh, code situations, and the resident runs in, and, and you can tell they're looking for the ICU nurse. <laughs> like, help me. <laughs> and so, and, and then it, others are, are very competent, and they do an incredible job. And it yeah. depends if, if they're in an area they really want to be in. Okay. Uh, a lot of you say new doctors. A lot of times that, that would be a resident, someone that's already – Uh, graduated, they're a doctor, and they're going through different residencies, more or less to figure out exactly where they want to work. So when they they say residency, that means that they can, depending obviously what they studied in school, I assume, they do residencies in different departments to kind of figure out where they're going to specialize? Or Or they may have already decided and and they're doing a residency in that particular area. And that's called in practice, right? When they get to... I suppose. Okay. I wasn't sure what the level... (laughs) <laughs> I, I've just always thought of it as residency. Okay. But, uh, the, I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out the yeah. doctor rank structure. You're right. Right. Well, there's, you know, there's always the, the doctors that are experienced that have been there yeah. for a long time. 
So, so what, when, so you, you're working in, uh, so trauma ICU was one of your favorites, mm-hmm. um, to work and you, you had a really good dynamic there with the, um, the other nurses and the doctors and whatnot that were working in it. And, and so it's interesting that you say that hospitals will have kind of a personality. Mm-hmm. What, what do you like elaborate on that without obviously mentioning any, cause you, <laughs> this is the other thing people need to understand for anybody that knows you right now that might watch this and be like, wait a second, is she talking about our house? You've worked at a ton of hospitals. I've worked at so many hospitals in yeah. different States. Yeah. I've been a travel nurse which is a little different. You go and you're, you're a temporary yeah. employee, you yeah. know, usually for about three months on average. Um, when I remember when, when Tina and I were still in the military mm-hmm. and Tina, you would oftentimes, you know, get a, a travel job. So you could kind of be close to us yeah. and, and help out whether, cause I, I might be deploying or I might be in the field mm-hmm. for several weeks at a time and, and whatnot. And, uh, and that was something that was always really yeah. appreciated by us. So you, I, I want to make sure everyone understands you've, you've worked all over the country. So, correct. Mm-hmm. but when you say a hospital, sometimes a hospital or a department can have its own personality, mm-hmm. what, what do you mean by that? Sometimes the personality, I think other nurses would understand this. Some hospitals, uh, people just get along. The the coworkers, you know, mostly mostly women and well, especially in the OB department. Okay. It's it's mostly women. Uh in ICU or emergency room, there's a lot of, of guys that yeah. work there too that are RNs. But uh it just depends. It's hard to explain. Sometimes it's more like a sisterhood. You're all yeah. like a group of sisters. And sometimes you, you know, bicker a little bit like sisters might. But boy, you stick up for each other. You've got each other's back. Well, let me, let me ask you this. So, so would you say that, so a hospital kind of, kind of have its own, you know, personality. Um, when you look at an individual department, do you think either the, the senior doctors or maybe the charge nurse or, um, or the senior nurses, do they really kind of set the tone for the, the personality can. of the department? Yeah, they definitely can. Yeah. And so, and, and just so I, just so everyone in the audience who might not be felt like a, a charge nurse would be kind of the, the senior, the, the head, the nurse in charge mm-hmm. for that like shift or, or that department. Is that an accurate it would be uh, for that shift, like, uh, okay. you know, a, a, the PM shift, you know, if it's yeah. an eight hour shift, like the three to 11, there might be someone who's the charge nurse in a smaller hospital. They will also probably have a patient assignment in a larger hospital. Uh, they probably won't. They what does probably, that mean? Um, well, it means that in a larger hospital where you have lots of patients, lots of nurses on a floor, the charge nurse has to oversee everything and make sure everything is running smoothly. If they're getting admissions or transfers, they have to coordinate all those things. They have to make sure everything is going on and and rolling along as it should. So it's not really possible for them to have a patient assignment uh, as well. So they're they're kind of, they're kind of managing, correct managing things as they come in, but it's not like they have like their patient. That's their patient. That correct. Okay. But in a smaller hospital, you do. Yeah. I've worked in both and in a smaller hospital, you might be in charge and trying to figure out, you know, comings and goings of, of different patients and assignments and things. Uh, maybe a nurse has to go home sick and now yeah. you've got to figure out what am I going to do? Can I call someone in? Yeah. But in the small hospital, you will also have your own patients to take care of as well. So it, it so you're not it just making you pretty busy. Yeah, you're not just making sure the trains run on time. You've actually yeah. got specific patients that you got to yeah. be assigned to at the same time. Okay, that's true. Well, l- let me ask you this: from from the um, so you had cardiac ICU, trauma mm-hmm. ICU, ER, um, mm-hmm. OB. Would would you say mm-hmm. those four were kind of the, the, that's the primarily? main ones? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so let, let me ask you this. Well, and I'll break it in. I'll break it into kind of three ICU, ER, and uh, OB. Um, I mean, obviously, you've you've got to be careful of you know you know patient confidential and all of that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there obviously you know you can read the news and you can hear mm-hmm. about harrowing medical stories and things like that. So, what's say from your from your ICU days? Um, what, what is, and even if it's not a specific, you know, case, but like, what is something that kind of like walk us through a, a, a day in the life of, um, maybe a, a scary day or a happy day in the ICU? Mm-hmm. Like what, what's a day in the ICU where it's like, yep, that defines kind of, that defines what that experience is like. Usually it would be a code blue. Okay. So what does code blue mean? Code blue. Uh, it's, call different things, different places, but code blue is basically a cardiac arrest. Okay. So and you have somebody can be caused by a number of things. And, and I, I'm assuming mm-hmm. if you're in the cardiac ICU, it's probably, I mean, a heart attack probably brought you in there, right? Possibly. Okay. Yeah. Or uh, cardiac bypass surgery, something like that. Okay. So, all right. Uh, so somebody, the, the precursor, the preemptive yeah. strike to having the, uh, Okay. So somebody, somebody has, so somebody is a, a, uh, I mean, a patient that's high risk, mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and cardiac related. So they're in the cardiac ICU and then all of a sudden code blue goes off. What, it, what happens next? Well, you call the code blue. Sometimes in a cardiac ICU, you don't necessarily call it overhead, but, um, there's usually a button or a cord you pull or something like that. And then the other staff in the unit will show up. Yeah. Uh, come on in there and help you. You start CPR, you um, do cardioversion if necessary, give uh, the cardiac drugs that are needed according to the type of uh, cardiac arrest that it is. Well, so, how do you, how do you know? Like, so I'm, I'm imagining, <laughs> I'm imagining a situation where, you know, again, you've, you've got things are relatively calm, people are around, you guys are doing, doing what you do under normal circumstances. And then all of a sudden, like what happens when code blue, like our blue sirens go like, what's going on? <laughs> what's going on in there when code blue goes off? Uh, usually it, it's like a, a sound, like a, you know, an alarm is going okay. off. Okay. And then like the light outside the room might be flashing. To but when show you, you say, when you say based and, off of the cardiac arrest, like what kind, what do you mean? Like, cause I imagine you're running in and it's not chaos, but a lot of excitement. They go into, usually it's what we call V-fib, ventricular okay. fibrillation, which is the heart is just uh, fibrillating. It's just kind of vibrating. It's not putting out any blood. Okay. So technically you have about four minutes of the brain without oxygen and the organs without oxygen before there's permanent irreversible damage. So what are the other forms of heart attack? Um, other forms would be <laughs> just asystole. The heart just stops. It blocks out. Something uh, happens, a blood clot or something, and it just blocks the uh, pathway, the electrical pathway that causes the heart to beat in order. And it just, it just stops. And then you have uh, asystole, which is a real bad one. Most people don't come back from that. Or you can have a rapid VTAC where the heart's beating so fast that it doesn't really get enough cardiac uh, or enough perfusion to get the blood out to the major organs and particularly to the brain. And then again, you, you've got about four minutes to try to restore that circulation, circulation and oxygenation to the brain. See, I'm, I'm revealing my own ignorance here. When you, when, <laughs> I, when I hear heart attack, I mm-hmm. think, Oh, my heart just stopped. 
but there's so there's multiple versions of heart attack where it can either be moving too fast or not at all or Correct. just not sending the right signals to actually or, or irregularly. I, I mean, I've obviously we've heard of like an irregular heartbeat or whatnot, and and all of that stems from the idea that if it, if it ain't working right, right, blood isn't flowing the way it's supposed to be, brain isn't getting oxygen, and would so you would say that in most of those situations, it's all about like what, what are you. Because again, I think the image in most people's minds is you guys are all running in with like paddles and clear, you know, boom. Kind of. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that happens. So that's a pretty accurate depiction. Of, Somewhat. Yeah. You yeah. know, in a, in an ICU, you're a little more prepared for the possibility that that's going to happen. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's an intense situation no matter what, even if you're well-practiced at it and you've, you know, been through code blue a number of times. Yeah. It's still an intense situation because you know you're you're fighting against the clock and you've got to get get uh, circulation and oxygenation restored within a very short period of time. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say it's different in the hospital setting than it is, say, out you know just anywhere. There's a, if you're just out like on a baseball field or yeah. out hunting with your friend or something, and and someone collapses, there are different reasons that people have heart attacks or or need like emergency code blue assistance. Sometimes they might be bleeding out. Yeah. Uh, sometimes they've had an electrical shock. Sometimes, um, you know, there can be just almost anything that can cause a situation like that. So what, so I imagine, I imagine what happens is you're in, you're in cardio ICU and you've got, um, like how many patients typically might you have us? And, and I realize this probably varies based off of a big hospital or a smaller hospital, but like at, at a bigger hospital, we'll, we'll go with that. Mm -hmm. How many patients do you probably have assigned to one nurse? In a cardiac ICU? Yeah. One or two. One or two. Now, oh, I've wow, worked okay. in hospitals in, in certain states where they do not have the legislation to back up the staffing. They don't have uh, particular staffing laws. And I've seen where, you know, you've got more patients in an ICU, which is, I think, not a good situation in most cases. But uh, usually... Um, Usually it's one or two. If you get somebody that you're receiving someone back from uh, cardiac surgery, then you better just have that one patient. Yeah. Um, if they're stabilized and, you know, it's the next day, sometimes you'll have two. Yeah. Uh, same thing with a trauma ICU or a medical surgical ICU, things like that. You, you would usually have one or two patients depending on how critical they are. So wait, wait, one, one or two nurses per patient or? If they're on an intraortic balloon pump that we used to do, yeah, um, there would be two nurses to that one two patient. Nurses, so that's per shift, two nurses per right. shift. So why two? Why two in that one, situation? One nurse has to run the balloon pump. Oh, okay. Yeah. And okay. like I said, I haven't been in uh, yeah, yeah, they might. in cardiac ICU for a long time. They may be doing something a little bit different now. Okay. But what, uh, about, what about trauma ICU? Because trauma ICU, again, I'm thinking in my head, you know, gunshot yeah. wound, um, or, or pretty much anything, you know, somebody could have gotten a bad, bad car accident, car accident, motorcycle versus deer. Oh, I've really? had some real interesting ones. Sometimes we've had people on those rotation beds that you see in the movies where, where you flip the person over. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. It, it's like a, a rotation. I don't know how to else to describe it. It's a, like a cage yeah. type of a, a thing, I guess, for lack of a better description. And uh, you can roll the patients, you know, so they're prone, so they're face down or, yeah. uh, you know, sideways or just change their position just because of the framework that they're in. Yeah. And uh, a lot of times you're giving massive blood transfusion. Okay. And that requires a lot. Sometimes two nurses, you know, one to run and get blood and bring it back. And 
you're not just giving uh, blood, you're giving, you know, plasma and cryoprecipitate and platelets and all kinds of things. Some of those things need to be done a little bit differently than just a, a standard blood transfusion. So there's a lot going on so we, a lot you, of times with those patients. And, yeah, and, you know, at the same time, you've got to be carefully monitoring vital signs and heart rate and blood pressures. And, well, and let, me, let me ask you this, because it sounds like, um, I mean, the, the very, very limited medical training, you know, I went through in the military and our 18 deltas, they went through a lot and they focus a lot on trauma because, you know, that, that was kind of our job. But um, here's my question. In, in a cardiac ICU, I, I would think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I would think that in most cases, when you got to go running into a room, you know what you're running in to deal with. Pretty much. But you can in see a, it on the monitor. Okay. But in a trauma ICU, that could be, it could be any number of things, right? I mean, obviously they got brought in for a particular reason. Right. But well, they would generally hit the emergency room first. And okay. then we would have some knowledge of what happened. They were in a car accident, steering wheel trauma to the chest or whatever, we would know by then, you know, if they had lost a massive amount of blood, if they were conscious or unconscious, if there was a head injury involved. That's another area would be um, neuro ICU, which I never really worked specifically neuro ICU, but you do get some of that in in, uh, in trauma ICU, of course. So we did have to have a reasonable knowledge of that too. So what were some intracranial of the, pressure monitors and things. Got it. So what were some of the craziest traumas huh. that that got people landed in trauma ICU. Oh, gosh. Um, all kinds of things. Like I said, deer versus motorcycle. Is that a common thing? Uh, I don't know about common. It, you yeah. know, we had a few of those. People out on those ATVs and rolling them and yeah. being thrown, car accidents, uh, drownings. Um, would, you, would you say that... Gunshot wound. <laughs> yeah. Would you say that something like vehicular accidents were the were the most common thing that would usually land someone Generally speaking, yeah. Okay. Any, any ones that are just like bizarre? Oh, let me think for a second. Um, of, a, of a vehicle accident? No, no, just any just like any? bizarre trauma. It's, you know. I, I knew of one once. I was not involved in this, okay. but I heard about it later. Yeah. And patient uh, presents to the emergency room with a huge butcher knife protruding out of his chest, a self-inflicted wound. He put it up against the wall and ran onto it trying to commit suicide. Well, he was still alive somehow. Oh my gosh. Well, here's the other thing too. If you have a major trauma with with a, like a, a stick or a limb or a, a knife or something in you, don't take it out. Okay, that's good to know. It may actually be tamponading or stopping the bleeding. So just get to the hospital. But anyway, this fellow was still awake and um, the doctor at the time, there was a vascular surgeon there, um, they pull this guy in. I don't even know if they did this in the ER or the OR. And uh, he split open the guy's chest, got in there, you know, did a couple of quick stitches um, in the heart, you know. After so he they, did hit his heart? Uh, yeah, he did. Wow. And uh, they they took him in and then they, they prop, you know, to stop the bleeding, get everything together. Uh, he threw a few stitches in and then they hauled him into the OR and you know, then finish the job correctly. I saw the guy with my own eyes a couple of days later up walking in the hall. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Just amazing. Yeah. That was, that was pretty remarkable. Do, do they have, do they have, that should have been on a TV show. Oh man. Well, yeah. You don't, you don't <laughs> yeah. imagine You'll I see mean, that every day. No, no. Well, and especially like the, as far as someone, I mean, that's horrible when somebody, you know, attempts suicide, yeah. but the way he attempted it, oh my gosh. 
Usually now, people that do things violently like that succeed. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that was a, a pretty rare case. Hopefully he got plenty of psychiatric counseling and well, things and, too to, you know, keep him from doing that again. <laughs> well, well, speaking of that, there, there's something else too that I think people should understand. And cause this, uh, this blew my mind. And I remember, um, my, my good, one of my, one of my best friends in SF, um, you know, Mike, and his wife, Casey, mm. she was a nurse and you guys were nurses together yes. for a while. Yeah, and I remember, together. yeah, I remember one time Casey talking, and this is something I don't think people realize because I didn't realize it at the time, but, um, I, I, I think it was, was it Tylenol? She, <gasps> oh. yeah. To, it, let everyone know mm. because uh, there are cases where someone is doing like a cry for help. Yes. And because it's time because it's over the counter. They think this isn't a big deal. I mean, I've known of a number of cases, yeah. uh, not too many, thank goodness, but a few where someone will take a large amount of Tylenol thinking, well, Tylenol is harmless. And then they'll go sit in the emergency room parking lot or go into the emergency room a little bit later. The problem is they've just succeeded um, in committing suicide. So maybe they were like, as you say, just it was a cry for help. They didn't really mean to. Tylenol is absolutely deadly to the liver. It, it destroys it. it. The problem is it will be a slow and painful death and there is nothing they can do to save you short of uh, a liver transplant, and you're probably not on the list. Yeah. There are people that are waiting for liver transplant for months and months and months that don't get one. Yeah. And somebody that tried to commit suicide like that is probably going to be pretty low on the list, and yeah. they won't get one in time. As a matter of fact, a dear friend of mine, her sister was doing that kind of thing, kind of the cry for help, like, oh, look at me, everybody, and I, you know, I need some attention. I, you know, I'm, I'm, sad, I'm depressed, I need help. And she took a bottle of Tylenol PM. And about a couple weeks later, she died. And it was horrible. And her sister was just distraught over it and is now raising her child. Wow. And uh, yeah, it was heartbreaking because she didn't really want to commit suicide. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as you say, cry for help. And there's a lot of things like that. When I, I, yeah, I remember, I remember that, you know, her explaining that to me, she goes, yeah, it's, it's horrible to have to explain to somebody that did something like that, yeah. thinking they were going to, you know, just wake people up to their problems or demonstrate that they were having a hard time. Exactly. And then you have to explain it. It's like, okay, you, like you said, you succeeded. It's probably going to take, you know, several weeks yeah. and there's nothing we can do about it. And, and it's just kind of the horror of someone realizing that yeah. they really didn't have any intention of actually following through. And now for several weeks now, they're going to get to compliment, you know, or, or contemplate this. And, and it just, it doesn't, it, it feels like it should be something that we can fix. You would think, but it's yeah. not. Is, is there any other like over-the-counter stuff like that that people don't realize how dangerous it is? Probably. Yeah. I, you know, I can't even, actually, you can overdose on vitamins and cause yeah. some, some serious harm depending on what it is. But um, yeah, I'm sure that there's a number of medications. If you took too many of them, it's yeah. going to, it's going to succeed in uh, your demise. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I work in ER. You said you didn't work ER long. Why, <laughs> why did you not particularly like ER? Well, <laughs> Uh, I'm a very practical kind of person. <laughs> and, um, I was pretty sure if I worked ER for very long, I would get fired. Okay. Because, um, well, that's the, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
um, probably because of the number of people that come to the emergency room, um, basically wanting a sandwich and, uh, you know, watch their favorite TV show or something like that. And, or they'll come in for very minor complaints. You know, they've got a cold or a sore throat or an earache or, you know, something very small yeah. that, you know, you, come on, you could have gone to Walmart and bought yeah. some cough drops or, you know, a 98 cent bottle of Tylenol. Now, are you required? Just don't take it all. <laughs> so like I, I know with Intella laws and, and most Americans don't yeah. understand this. They, they watch, they watch the Hollywood version of American healthcare and they think that the right. hospital just kicks you out because you can't afford to pay when it's like, Never. no, that's a Illegal. That's that illegal. Illegal. In the United States, mm-hmm. you are guaranteed uh, healthcare. Yeah. They have to, at the at a bare minimum, stabilize you mm-hmm. in order to transfer you to another hospital. Yeah. But there is always there's no such thing as you just dying because hospitals refuse to provide care. Correct. And what it equates to is hospitals are one of the you know only industries in the United States mm-hmm. that are required to give you goods and services regardless of your ability to pay. Correct. And, and we do it all the time. So so yeah. let me ask you about that because there's a lot of people that will look at something like this and be like, well, of course, of course you would. And, and I don't think anybody doesn't want people to be able to get healthcare when they're in, you know, a dire situation or a life-threatening environment. Like, you know, but what, what you're saying, and, and believe me, you're not the only person that I've talked to that has worked mm-hmm. ERs that have come to this conclusion is that there is a lot of people that exploit that yeah. law and that system um, for what you just said. It, so let me ask you this. It, it is one thing to tell a hospital that you are required to make sure that, yeah, somebody doesn't, you know, they, they weren't just shot or they don't have, you know, they're not right on the verge of having a heart attack or something like that to where they, they will need. What you're saying is, is mm-hmm. that somebody is walking in and, and are these like what we might call regular offenders? Like, is it? Some are. Yeah. Yeah. And they can come in and get, you know, get care, get it. If they say, you know, the right buzzwords, like, oh, I have chest pain. Yeah. They'll, they come in, they get, you know, cardiac labs drawn, they get an EKG, they get a chest x-ray, they get put on a cardiac monitor. Yeah. Um, we watch them for, you know, oftentimes several hours yeah. and then everything's fine. You haven't had a heart attack, you know, you're good to go. And we can discharge them. They can turn around and walk right back in the door and make either the same or another complaint, and we are required to treat them. You have to go through the same process to. again. We have to treat them. So it's not mm-hmm. like you can say, hey, look, we just did this. We're not taking up a bed. We're not taking up an EKG monitor. Nope. You have to do it all over again. We have to treat them. See, this is the part I don't think people yeah. understand, is, is mm-hmm. that this happens, and that this happens on a fairly regular basis on, mm-hmm. on ER department or, or in ER departments all across the yeah. country. And what that equates to is, that doctor's time, that nurse's time, the use of that equipment, the use of that bed. And so people will look at mm-hmm. an ER visit. They'll look at, excuse me, they'll look at an ER visit and they'll be like, I'm furious that I had to wait, you know, uh, two hours to be seen. Mm-hmm. And then when I finally got a bed, you know, they didn't do anything. And it's, and as much as I can understand how frustrating that is, I can imagine it's even more frustrating for the nurses and doctors who see exactly what's going on can mm-hmm pretty much effectively differentiate between the people taking advantage and the people that desperately yeah. need to be seen and, and being told, sorry, federal law says mm-hmm. that if we want to be able to take Medicaid patients or Medicare patients or just as exists as a hospital, right. we have to provide these services and we can't tell someone who's obviously manipulating the system. We'll see it tomorrow. Like not mm-hmm. even, not even mm-hmm. we'll see it tomorrow. It's like, Nope, they came in the same day. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. No, I had a I had a patient in the waiting room once in an emergency room, and he had a, a very significant gash in yeah. his arm. And he's like, "We've been waiting for six hours," and I apologized to him profusely. I said, "Look around you. Yeah. Do you see? You know, these people sitting here reading magazines, the kids running around banging on the Coke machine, tearing the magazines up, all that. These people are here. They could have gone to Walmart. Yeah. And probably bought maybe some cold medicine, and you know, not all of them for sure. You know, they're might be other things going on. I don't know everybody that's sitting in the uh, ER waiting room at that time. Yeah. But here was someone who very obviously needed to be seen. And we try to triage people as best we can. He wasn't bleeding to death. He wasn't yeah. having a heart attack. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So, you know, he just had to kind of take a number and wait, so to speak. And um, I just try to explain to him that this is such a common problem. Yeah. So, so let me... It, it, <laughs> We we had I, I had I had somebody local who was an EMT told me that that um, during COVID during COVID somebody called an ambulance because they wanted to go get cigarettes. Now obviously <laughs> they didn't say that over the phone. <clears throat> yeah, but you know, um, I had a patient call me up in the OB department and say that her mother in law forgot to pick up some Tylenol for her, so she was going to call the ambulance to bring her to the hospital uh, because she wanted some Tylenol. And I told her, do not do that. Yeah. Do not call an ambulance. You can find someone. I was like, where do you live? Yeah. She lived about three blocks away. I said, you know, get someone to walk down there and get it for you. Or yeah. if you're not in serious condition, walk there yourself. Sure enough, she called the ambulance to get a Tylenol. And probably and, and never paid for that because. Oh, no, no. Yeah. What is it? thousand dollars yeah. or more for an ambulance ride well this is no we paid for it yeah yeah everyone with health insurance paid for <laughs> right, it. everyone that right. pays taxes paid for it but yeah and i've had a patient come to the ob department come to the emergency room and get sent to the ob department two days in a row um because she needed some cough drops she had a kind of a sore throat and, and you guys drop. are required by law to give them medication <clears throat> we are that one i thought i was going to get fired over because uh, excuse me, I, I confronted her and said, do you mean to tell me, I mean, we saw you yesterday. We, you know, gave you medication. We got you a prescription. We saw you, we checked out your baby. Everything is fine. And yet you came back today to the hospital because you still have a sore throat. You know, it's like, seriously, can you not afford to go to a, a local drugstore yeah. or Walmart or wherever and buy a 98 cent bag of cough drops. Oh boy. Was she offended? Called her grandmother. Her grandmother came down, stared at me. I thought if she could kill me with looks, she would. And I couldn't believe it. I so I went to my purse and I got out $5 <laughs> and I brought it to her and I said, honey, if you truly cannot afford to buy a, a $1 package of cough drops. I will buy them for you. Yeah. I don't want your money. I don't want your money. It's you like, are getting my money. You're just doing, <laughs> you're just holding up the hospital at the same time. Right. Right. No, I said, you know, a hospital visit like this is approximately $800. Um, I, you know, I, I feel badly if you truly, and she, I mean, she was dressed nicely, had the cute little purse and the stylish yeah. dress, you know, yeah. and all it was, didn't Na really fit. Nails done. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It had a cell phone. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't really fit the picture of, gee, I can't afford a $1, you know, or a 99 cent, yeah. you know, a little package of cough drops, you know, Gosh, from wherever. Dang. But uh, yeah, I thought, oh, I might get fired over this one. Is that really something that you could get a serious beef for in the hospital? Probably. Yeah, I I never have had one. I'm usually pretty careful about yeah. what I say to people, even if I'm upset. 
Yeah. You know, you, you are a professional. You're, you're not, you're not doctor. You're not Dr. House running around telling everyone what an idiot they are. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Although sometimes you wish you were. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it, it, and it, here's the part that, here's the part that I kind of struggle with on that is one of the biggest frustrations I have when people talk about universal health care is that, oh, it would be so much better if it was like Canada or the UK. Mm. Now, you've never worked over there, but you've had yeah. friends that I think friends that worked in. Um, in Canada. Yeah. I also had a friend um, some years ago and she had seven brothers and sisters watched every single one of them die of cancer waiting for treatment. And she told me then that anyone that can afford it. Yeah leaves Canada and goes to the U.S. for treatment. So if you're young, if you're part of the workforce, if you're, you know, in that age group, you'll probably get reasonably good health care yeah. in, in, a, in a situation like that. I've known younger people that were from Canada yeah. um, that thought the health care was just great. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, because they were young and they were part of the productive workforce. But people that were older than 50... Um, not so much. Yeah, now they're, now they're doing recommended And that's suicide. not me saying that. That was a Canadian individual telling me that yeah. and how horrible it was. And uh, like I said, she's the one that said anyone who can afford it goes to the U.S. Well, to it, get their health care. It blows my mind when I talk to Americans about everything that frustrates them with American health care. Yeah. I'm like, I, I, I get it. I'm not claiming our system is perfect. Mm-hmm. I'm not even claiming it's great. But I will say this. Everything you're mad about within the American health care system is a result of government intervention into the mm-hmm. American health care system. Right. And um, and and it's it is frustrating to watch how and I and I've seen. I've seen people within the medical establishment really co-opted by this idea that like in Intel laws or something, COPN, uh, certificate of public, uh, need, public need. That's another thing that I talk to people about where they don't understand that if you're an underserved area, that doesn't mean someone can come in and just set up shop and start providing additional right. services. Um, if you're a COPN state, they have to justify that there's actually public need. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason why they have to do that or, or part of that process is, your competition in that area gets to say, Oh no, 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 you, you can't do those particular services. And you say, well, that's ridiculous. How could that possibly be a thing? And it's like, well, if you're a hospital and you're taking Medicare and Medicaid, and um, then you have you have certain rules with respect to what you have to do, how much you can charge. Mm-hmm. You have certain services that you have to provide in an emergency room, um, which inevitably causes the cost to go up mm-hmm. because of all the people that are getting services without paying. Whereas if you set up a clinic where all you're doing is paid services, you don't have the overhead associated with having to take people that can't pay for services. And so it's one of these things where you, you, you can understand why people are propping up a bad system. It's because they're scared to death of what would happen if those controls weren't there. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in the end, it, it really creates a, a perverse incentive, but I don't, I don't want to get too far off into the, the politics of it. Mm-hmm. What about, um, so w- again, you worked ER, worked, you know, or you're afraid to get fired on ER for people that were coming in that were abusing the system. Mm-hmm. Now we go to OB and that's mm-hmm. where you've spent the majority of your time. So yes. obviously there's something about it that you love, but mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are probably looking like, OB, well, it's delivering babies, right? Like how, <laughs> and, and you were saying that OB uh-huh. is, OB is the best and worst place to work. Like yeah. explain that a little bit. Um, first of all, it's more stressful than trauma ICU. Wow. <laughs> uh, 
I, I will definitely say that. Um, it is a wonderful place to work. I love working in OB. Obviously, I've, I've stayed there for so long, but it is also extremely stressful at times. Um, you're responsible for uh, a person that's right there in front of you and then a baby that you technically can't see yeah. that's inside, and any number of things can happen, and, uh, and they do. <laughs> yeah. I have seen uh, some incredible things happen over my my almost 30 years of experience there. And, uh, you know, everybody thinks, you know, and wants the perfect delivery, the perfect baby. Of course they do. And we do everything within our power to ensure that that will happen. But there are things beyond our control, yeah. um, just absolutely beyond our control. And as much as we try to, you know, see inside, you know, with different types of monitoring and things, um, it's it's not always something that you can fix or or make right. Yeah, as hard as we try, and most times things turn out okay. Yeah, um, the minute you get pregnant, you've probably got somewhere in the neighborhood of a twenty five percent chance of having a C section. Okay, and uh, I personally will try everything in my power to give you a, a regular delivery. You know, the yeah. spontaneous vaginal delivery. Um, that you want, but thank goodness we can do a C-section if we really need to. So what's so, the, like, I remember when, when Tina and I've, I've talked about this yeah. on the show, Tina's been here and, and the first, uh, when, when she gave birth to Lily, yeah. that was a tough, that was a tough birth. Mm-hmm. Umbilical cord was wrapped around Lily's neck twice. Yeah. She kept presenting and then disappearing. Right. And then, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm trying to not be too graphic here, but it was, I, I remember us talking about this later and, and you being a little bit frustrated um, with kind of how that went down because you got to be there in the room with us, yeah. which I was very grateful for yeah. because when, when Lily was finally born, she was blue. She wasn't breathing. She wasn't screaming. Tina was blue. I mean, it was, it was a bad situation and I was very, very thankful that you were there. Um, and but, I might add it, it's a fairly common situation. Yeah. So, yeah. so is the, is the umbilical cord wrapped around the neck like twice? Is that pretty common or at least like what? It's it, fairly common. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen it up to four times. And, and, oh, oh four times. Okay. Yeah. Well, shoot, that's not and that I, common. I've <laughs> seen this 30 years. Wrapped around the neck and what we call a true knot. Oh, really? Cord, where the baby has moved around so much that it has actually gotten the umbilical cord into a knot. Oh my gosh. And, uh, yeah, if that is tightens, that like C-section? No, you don't know it's there until the baby delivers. Oh, okay. okay. I saw one of those recently too, and uh, wow, it's a uh, whoo! You you breathe a sigh of relief, like look at that, boy. If that had tightened up, so what? That's what's bad news? And, and what's more difficult? Um, so when when a, when a uh, like we we talk about the baby not being turned, we talk yeah. about the baby being what is it? Breach is when they're the turned around. Breach is either feet first or their their little bottom. Okay. Frank breach is coming out first. Oh wow! That is uh, not a great situation. Yeah. That is not good. If uh, if you know you're going to have a baby that's in a breach presentation, baby's not been able to be turned. Uh, do not try to have your baby at home. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. If if you know your baby is breech, you need to go to the hospital to have your baby and probably be a C-section. Okay. Um, I had a situation at one place that I worked one time and the people absolutely insisted on trying to, you know, do a birth without having a C-section on their yeah. breech baby. And the doctor was there and everything and the baby didn't make it. Really? Uh, they, they can get caught. Their yeah. head gets caught coming out and you really... Um, 
are in a tough situation to try to get them out. And remember, you don't have that long. Yeah. You don't yeah. have that much time. And uh, yeah, there was a situation where the parents absolutely insisted, nope, we're going to have this baby, you know, vaginal birth. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not a, we do not want a C-section. And well, and look, I, I've become, I, I know 10 years ago, if you would have asked me about all this, I would have said it's, it's, you know, stupid. Why would you do anything? At, you know, why would you do birth at home? Why would you do this? Why yeah. would you do that? And, and I've changed the way I've thought about a lot of this and, and some parts because of how frustrated I've been with the way the hospital system worked during COVID with the yeah. way that with the way the pharmaceutical companies work. And so I've become a lot more skeptical and a lot more open to, to alternatives. Um, but the bottom line is the bottom line. I mean, if you're talking about, you know, so that's why the prenatal care is so important and, and understanding. Important. Okay. Yeah. So you, you've got breach. You've also got, what is it? Face down. Or face, or face down up. Is, face what, up when yeah. they're they're facing up, yeah, um, or facing outwards, like towards you know the front of you rather than your spine. Yeah, that's a lot more difficult to deliver as well. And some of those end up in C-section just because uh, the baby's head is not made to mold that way, and uh, it's a it. real tough one to get out. Really so, so I, maybe even it's not that big a baby, but it's as if it were a ten-pound baby when it's a seven-pound baby. Yeah. And really hard to get out. What's what's the heaviest baby you've probably delivered? Twelve pounds. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So what what's a- average around seven? Seven to eight. Seven to eight. Yeah, between seven and eight is pretty average. So so tw- yeah. twelve pound baby is that a uh, is that a fight? That's a toddler. <laughs> 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 yeah, it uh, can be, and I I've seen some difficult situations yeah. with things like that. Um, the reason prenatal care is so important, coming back to that, is. Um, you could be gestational diabetic, in which case the baby will get a lot larger than average. You may have a lot more amniotic fluid than usual. Uh, and the baby will come out with uh, its pancreas very confused because it's been relying on the mother's blood sugars. And then now all of a sudden that's gone. And it can cause uh, a lot of issues. So that's one reason, just one situation where prenatal care is extremely important. Another one is if the mother's uh, blood pressure is high. Yeah. A lot of people have high blood pressure um, during pregnancy or old age or whatever, and they don't, they're not even aware of it. Yeah. Um, and that can be a very, very dangerous situation for the mother and for the baby. There are a lot of things that can go wrong with that. It can turn into, they used to call it toxemia yeah. years ago. Now it's called preeclampsia. Yeah. And the eclampsia part means seizures. And uh, that can be a dangerous situation for mom and baby. It can also evolve into a stroke for the mother, um, an abruption, which is the placenta breaking away. There's a lot of things that can happen. So I, I would encourage everyone, please, please, please get good prenatal care. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you don't have the finances for it, you can usually um, be quickly accepted into like a Medicare, Medi-Cal, Medicaid, whatever your state has yeah, yeah. program where you can still get prenatal care. Um it's funny, I've had people come in and say, oh, I just couldn't get any prenatal care. No one would see me. And I'm thinking, that's funny because people come to this country, they don't even speak the language and they get right in. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Where were you? Yeah. <laughs> and usually it's because they're on some kind of drugs and they don't want to be discovered. Is that, is, so, yeah. And that's becoming more and more common. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. People showing up, no prenatal care at all. They show up, they're, they're in pain, they're in labor. We have no idea how far along they are. Um, We may or may not have time to do an ultrasound to try to determine, uh, depending on how fast they're delivering. Um, You know, we try to do quick 
test to see what drugs they're on because that can affect the baby. Um, there's just so many factors. And I've had numerous times with an ambulance pulling up to the back door of one of the hospitals that I work at. They're bringing somebody in and, you know, we're just, you know, working in the dark, doing yeah. the best that we can. And then, you know, those people, of course, want a perfect outcome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we're flying blind. We, we don't know. Do you, do you think, um, I, I mean, obviously there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, kind of the litigious nature of uh, society in general, but especially toward healthcare yeah. where um, I, I remember, I remember when, uh, what was it? John Edwards was, um, was running for vice president with John Kerry and you didn't like him much, not just because, not because of some of his political positions, but, it, um, or well, that too, but, um, <laughs> but the fact that he had made a lot of money suing, you know, Oh, and, oh, and yes. you, and you thought it, and, and again, it's obviously if somebody is, is genuinely guilty of malpractice or their, or negligence or whatnot, that is one thing. But I remember you talking about there being situations where it was really, really easy because it's a horrible situation. It is. And you've got a jury that obviously already feels a great deal of sympathy for, you know, the, the mother, the father. Um, but it, it was really easy to manipulate juries into these large awards uh, under situations that it was pretty dubious on whether or not the doctor had done anything wrong or the nurse had done anything wrong. It was uh, regarding primarily like cerebral palsy. Yeah. And what they've uh, discovered through studies is that the effects of cerebral palsy oftentimes happen long before the birth event. And yeah. it's, it's a silent thing. Maybe they got wrapped up in their cord or something. Um, it's and most times it's never even determined what, what actually caused it. Um, so yeah, but he was convincing him that it was doctors oh, not doing yes. C-sections quick yeah. enough or the doctor, the nurse, the hospital, yeah. you know, whatever the case. And sometimes that is the case, Yeah, but yeah. probably many, many times it's not. Mm. So yeah, I didn't like him much. Yeah. <laughs> well, and again, I think it's one of those things that people don't seem to understand is they'll, they'll, they'll talk about it. And, and, and look, I've carried legislation that will allow people to be able to sue hospitals, but it, it, it was within kind of narrow categories of, yeah. yeah, the hospital clearly was in violation of the law. Mm -hmm. This is how they were in violation of the law. The hospital mm -hmm. had 30 days to correct. They didn't, they refused it. Like, but in this situation, it was, again, it was, it was almost like they were preying upon it, a, a very difficult situation. Yeah. And, and what that equates to is increased medical costs. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that's another thing that, that is sometimes missed out on this is that, okay, well, Again, if, if someone got a large award and they were entitled to it because of what happened, absolutely, I understand. But none of this happens in a vacuum. This this does impact. Okay. Well, we, we've lost a lot of OB doctors yeah. uh, because the malpractice insurance is now so so astronomically I've heard high. it's up to 100000 a year. I think it's even more in places. Um, it's so astronomically high, they can't even uh, afford it. So they have to go to work maybe under... Um, a hospital, like be employed by the hospital or that hospital system or something yeah. like that um, in order to even do it. And a lot of them have left the practice and maybe they love delivering babies, but you know, yeah. there are things that are, again, there are factors that are unknown that we, we can't possibly know until that birth is happening or, um, or it's, you know, already occurred or something occurred you know, early on, yeah. or maybe the patient didn't even get adequate prenatal care, yeah. you know, or 
you know, all these things somehow that's our fault, you yeah. know, if they don't get a perfect baby. And, and, uh, my heart goes out to those people, you know, that's a terrible situation. Nobody wants that. And, and we do everything within our power yeah. uh, to prevent those situations. But there are, there are things beyond our control. Sure. Well, and, and, and I think, um, one of the things too, that, uh, cause I think you, were you at all three of the births for, um, I think you, Allie I think you, fooled me. That's right. That's right. Allie. I, I left work, got someone to take over my patients, jumped yeah. on an airplane, flew up to where you guys were uh, and they sent her home. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, <laughs> and then shortly Dino. after. Yeah. Yeah. And then I waited for a few days, waited for a few days, yeah. told you guys all my uh, secrets for going into labor. <laughs> <laughs> None of yeah. them worked. Yeah. <laughs> so the day after I went home, of course, she, she, she was, was born. <laughs> she was born. That's right. <laughs> so I wasn't there for hers. So. Yeah. Gosh. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you. So let, let me let me ask you this. Um, kind of transition a little bit. So again, you've been a nurse for 45 years. Yeah. Um, what was it like being a nurse under COVID? Oh, boy. Well, at first, I think, you know, we kind of didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're, you you stop and you're trying to figure this all out and you want to follow the rules and you're trying to follow the best medical advice that's available at the time. And uh, you, you kind of feel like you're, uh, you know, moving in the dark. Yeah. And so that was, that was one thing um, that was hard. You know, we'd have patients that came in and I remember one patient, <laughs> one of the first patients that I had to deliver, um, she had COVID. She was pretty sick with COVID and she was in labor. She was 34 weeks, I believe, if I remember correctly. She wasn't my patient. I was covering for another nurse who was on a meal break. And um, all of a sudden she went to, del- to deliver. And I have, you know, the full uh, isolation garb on. Yeah. And I'm pulling the alarm for help to come into the room because that baby is coming like right now. I don't have a baby nurse. I don't have a doctor. It's just me and her and the baby daddy. And um, people are trying to get all the isolation garb on, you know, before they get into the room. So by then I've delivered this baby. (laughs) (laughs) And um, in isolation, gowns and all are not perfect. So I, you know, I was a mess, you know, and was exposed, you know, in in a lot of ways. And I'll tell you what, before I went home that night, I went in and took like a hazmat shower (laughs) (laughs) because we didn't know. I mean, it was all pretty new at that stage. And uh, I remember telling my boss at the time, like, you know, I got exposed. I had, you know, blood all over me and my gown had, you know, slipped up and all these kind of things. Oh no, that's not an exposure. It's a respiratory exposure. <laughs> I'm like, well, if you really think that mask during that situation was, you know, had me protected, I'm not so sure. Yeah. But uh, you know, I weathered it, and I didn't come down with uh, COVID, so that was nice. And the baby was okay, and uh, the mom was a little in shock, but. Yeah. Um, it was fine. And the nurse came back from her break and went, oh, my goodness. <laughs> what a, you delivered our baby. Well, <laughs> yes, well, I did. Thank you. And I remember it was, it was funny because whenever you were there at the mm-hmm. hospital, you always made sure that there was a, a gift basket for the nurse uh, <laughs> that, that was attending yeah. us and whatnot. And because and, uh, it, it was funny, you're like, she goes, 
she, and you told me like, you're like, sweetheart, I'll take care of it. You worry about Tina. Yeah. She goes, but I'm doing something for the nurses. And the reason why is because <laughs> you're going to see this. The nurse will be there the whole time. The doctor will slip in maybe once or twice. And mm-hmm. then at the very end, the doctor will come in to catch the baby. Maybe. <laughs> and then it'll be like, oh, thank you, doctor. <laughs> and she goes, what? wait, what the heck? Wait. <laughs> so we were, always, we were always sure to make to make sure that we were thanking our nurses. Um, so you're, you're working during COVID. And obviously, mm-hmm. as, as things start to develop, then mm-hmm. all of a sudden there's the, oh, don't worry, we have we have a vaccine. Yeah. And obviously, you're working in arguably one of the most um you know, dangerous places that, that for high risk, yeah, high risk for, yeah. for infection and whatnot. Um, what was your, cause I know, I know how Tina and I felt about it and mm-hmm. Tina and I have not, we haven't, we're not anti-vaxxers. Like we, we don't believe that vaccines are all bad or anything mm-hmm. like that. However, we're, we're cautious about them because we understand like anything else, things are designed, things right. are manufactured, mm-hmm. things are administered by people. Mm-hmm. And, and not everything always works as advertised. And we don't know absolutely everything there is to know. And mm-hmm. I remember we took a lot of heat um, when our kids were little by kind of extending out some of that process. And we would say, well, no, we don't want like, you know, whatever, 20 vaccines for our kids all in one sitting. And and we had doctors roll their eyes at us. We had, and, and again, I, I'm not telling other people what to do, right? This is an area where I don't, I, I don't claim to be a subject matter expert. I know what we knew at the time. I know what we had experienced with other family members and, and their situation. And we said, you know what? This is the decision we're going to make for our, our children. Mm-hmm. And um, and so we we just kind of extended out the schedule um, mm-hmm. and, and waited on certain things. And that still got, you know, doctors mm-hmm. looking at us like we were idiots or, or witch doctors or whatever else. Yeah. Um, when this came out, when the vaccine came out, Tina and I pretty much right off the bat said, there's something we don't trust about this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as we looked at what COVID was doing, cause obviously if you're talking about like, you know, March of 2020 or whatever it is, yeah, we didn't know. Like, was this, was this going to be mm-hmm. the worst thing ever and wipe out a third of the population or was it going to be what it turned out to be, which was, you know, uh, bad, but we weren't in a high risk you know, range and our, and our mm-hmm. kids, well, we didn't have a bunch of comorbidities. We didn't have a, a bunch of other issues. We weren't elderly. We didn't have respiratory problems. And I was, we were both a little bit concerned with how quick this vaccine came out. And then we were a little bit concerned with the fact that it didn't seem to be working as advertised. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm old enough to remember the, Oh, if you wear a mask, this, and if you take this, this, and if you do this, and then all of a sudden it was okay, but that isn't working the way you said it was going to work. And then it was, oh, but now trust us, the experts are now telling you to take yeah. this vaccine. That's going to work fine. And oh yeah, there's no, there's no real side effects and don't worry about it. And my attitude, quite frankly, was screw you. <laughs> um, you've told me a bunch of other crap that didn't turn out to be true. And I don't know if I trust you on this. And because there's about a 0.03% chance that this could kill me, I'm not taking your vaccine. Mm-hmm. Now, that was fine for me. I didn't have a job that was going to fire me if I didn't take it. You did have a job that was potentially mm-hmm. going to fire you. What was your... I knew nurses that got fired. Yeah. And I knew nurses that were threatened. If you do not get this, you will be fired. And they were just agonizing over the decision. It was a horrible decision Yeah, uh, for them to have to make. Um, I never did get the vaccine. Yeah. I caught COVID three times. Yeah. Uh, the first time, you know, I felt pretty lousy. It was like having a flu. Yeah. You know, body aches. Uh, I think I had a fever 
I had a, did have a fever for a day, um, sore throat, headaches. It felt pretty lousy. So and then you felt really tired and weak for you know a week or two afterwards. Um, and I remember that there were certain people that I knew that were in high risk categories. Uh, my own mother was you know well into her eighties and. She decided, you know, after looking at information that she wanted to go ahead and get the vaccine because she had um, not good lungs, not a great heart, and she was like 84 years old. Yeah. So she decided to go ahead and get the vaccine, and I, I didn't try to stop her from that. We were still in a, in a phase where we really didn't know, and you were hearing stories about all these people that died from COVID and that hospitals were pulling up, you know, semi-trucks and loading it with bodies. And, and yet, on the other hand, there were like mash hospitals set up that never got a patient. Yeah. Like what's going on here? Yeah. And I started really feeling like, wow, there's, there's a real mixture of information here and I'm not sure what's accurate. You know, are they kind of cherry picking their information? What's going on? Um, And yet there were nurses that caught COVID from taking care of patients that died. Mm. Um, So there there was a lot of confusion, I think. So what, but, why, what was your, so why didn't you want to take it and why didn't you get fired for not taking it? Okay. I was, um, I was already on record um, for my religious beliefs yeah. for stating that I would not take uh, part in any abortions yeah. whatsoever. So I was already on record for that. There was information that the vaccine had been made by using um DNA and things from stem cells and stem cells. Well, and from aborted babies. Yeah. And that was the kicker right there is I want nothing to do with that. Yeah. So I wrote up, you know, uh, they asked us to write an explanation of why we were declining the vaccine. And I, I wrote this up and I, I explained my religious beliefs and that it was on record for uh, not participating in in abortions in any way. And I got an initial like, okay, we'll kind of like let it slide for now kind of thing. And then a couple months later, all of a sudden I got another notice that it was under review and I, it was almost like you're going to have to do better than that. Yeah, yeah. Kind Not of a, a good enough explanation. Not a good enough explanation. Conviction. So sat down with a friend of mine and tried to explain more fully, you know, the depth of my religious experience and beliefs and my commitment to that. Um, things like when my children were young, I took them out of school and took them on mission trips and things that I've been a medical missionary on a number of occasions that I have refused to take part in abortions on, you know, every occasion. And they finally said, okay, all right, we won't hold you to it. Another person I know, one was a pastor's wife and they said, nope, get the uh, get the vaccine or you're fired and they fired her wow. and another one uh, that her commitment is known to everybody you know how the strength of her religious commitment and she was told get it or you're fired and she was at that time like the main uh income for her family and yeah. was just distraught over the de- decision but finally went ahead and got it, got the vaccine and just agonized over it. And I tried to really encourage her and just say, look, you made the best decision you could at the time. You did what you felt you had to do for the sake of your family. Don't beat yourself up. And then there were people that really were afraid, you know, maybe they were diabetic or maybe they were 
you know, overweight, or maybe they had um, a history of asthma or a pulmonary um, compromise or cardiac compromise that felt, I've got to get this. And I, I held no judgment towards anyone for yeah. getting it. But my personal decision for myself was that I, I don't want any part of it. I don't want to take it. And then as time went by and he started hearing about cardiac complications, people with massive blood clots, a friend of mine ended up after uh, taking the booster with massive blood clots. This is a very healthy yeah. young woman, uh, very active. And she had a blood clot that extended like from her knee to her thigh. She could have died from that. You start hearing uh, stories from undertakers yeah. saying that, that never have they seen anything like this with people with massive clots, like, you know, feet long <laughs> clots in their system after having, and they, you know, it turned out they were people that had taken the vaccine. So really a um, lot of information here now that we didn't have before. Yeah. Well, what's crazy to me is that I, I've had a number of people. Um, it, what, what was fascinating to me was how quickly the quote experts, right? <clears throat> yeah. the, government, the government approved experts, because that's what it was. You weren't hearing from all the experts. You were hearing from government approved experts because they were working with Twitter Correct. and Facebook and everyone else to shut down anybody that was dissenting from the, the CDC narrative or the Fauci narrative. And it, and it was amazing yeah. to me the number of people that just kind of went along with this. The, the same people that would have been skeptical of the government five seconds ago, right. all of a sudden in this situation is, nope, whatever they tell me is good. Inject me up. Give me another booster. Yeah. And again, my whole attitude was, if you want to get it, I'm not telling you what to do. Right. Like, do, do what you think is best. I, I'm not trying to make the decision for you, but I'm going to make the decision for me. And, and I'm not going to be ridiculed for it, especially under, you know, everything that we, we've now kind of learned. And it's it's fascinating now how the same hospitals that were complaining about a nurse shortage, it's like, oh, you mean yeah. the ones you fired, the perfectly qualified, perfectly good nurses, the one that were willing to come in and get tests every three days to stay employed? And that's what I had to do. Yeah. Get yeah. tested every three days. Yeah. You fired yeah. them. And, and and here's the other thing. The other part of COVID that I don't think we've, we've fully captured or, or probably ever will was the number of people that died because they were not just for, you know, mental health issues or alcoholism mm -hmm. or suicide, or but the number of people that died because they weren't able to go in and get care for the things that they needed um, mm -hmm. as a result of, of hospitals prioritizing everything toward COVID. And, and you look at it later, it's like, this wasn't even the most deadly thing that was affecting people. Right. Um, and, and it, it's, and again, I, the, the frustration, I remember talking to, um, we talked to another friend of ours and, and her whole job is, you know, and again, won't, won't say any names or whatnot, but her old job is working in this particular mm -hmm. field. Yeah. And I remember asking, are you getting it? Mm -hmm. And, um, and again, she fights viruses is what she does. Oh, said, yeah. Are you getting it? And she goes, I'm not getting it. I'm not having my children get it. She goes, mm -hmm. I will tell my elderly parents that I think it, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, but what was she doing? She was looking at, she was looking at the available data that we had. She was looking at everything that we knew about it. Um, and, and what it came down to at the end of the day was if, yes, if you're in one of these categories where this has a much higher degree of probability of potentially killing you, negative side effects of, of the vaccine probably won't be as, as great a threat to you as this. Mm -hmm. And, and what was amazing was when she sat there and explained it, it was completely dispassionate cost benefit analysis based off of available data. Mm -hmm. There was none of this. Well, if you don't take this, you're a bad person. You want people to die. Or if you right. do take this, you're, you're a, you know, you're a simp for, you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, it was just dispassionate analysis, which is what I was looking for, which right. is what I think so many of us were looking for during that time mm -hmm. and just had it utterly refused to us. 
Um, but that had to be an incredibly hard situation to be working in an environment where, you know, again, it, it wasn't a hard stand for me to take because I wasn't running the risk of losing my entire income as a result of it or losing, you know, a 40 year career at that point. Yeah. Um, the other thing that was frustrating, I think, was um, anyone that passed away from any reason whatsoever, if they said, if the hospital said they tested positive for COVID, it was listed as a COVID death. Yeah. And I know somebody that had um, severe heart problems um, and, and also had uh, leukemia. And was well into their 80s. Actually, I think he had even turned, I think he had turned 90. Yeah. And when he passed, they they put down that it was a COVID death. And his daughter was livid, yeah. just furious. Like, that is not why he died. He would roll over in his grave if he knew that they called his death a COVID death. Well, the the, the joke was is that someone shows up with three yeah. gunshot wounds. Oh, but they right. also tested possible with COVID death. And Don't it, laugh. I think that was true. Oh, well, and, and, inflated, and, they, and people ask, well, how could they get away with that? It's like, well, one, so mm. this is also the thing I try to explain Follow to people. the money. This is also the thing I try to explain mm. to people about government policy. When the government is handing out money, people start mm. looking for what conditions gets you the money. Right. And the conditions that got you the money during COVID was COVID death. Well, how are you going to prove it one way or another? Well, the government yeah. didn't want to say, well, you got to prove it was a COVID death. They just want to say if they tested positive for COVID and they died in the hospital, there you go. It was that. And you could get the money. Well, mm -hmm. uh, okay. So there now you've created a perverse incentive right. to actually inflate deaths mm -hmm. related to this. But then the, the deaths inflated to get the money is also what's fueling the money and the policies mm -hmm. and the regulations. And this, that's why it is so dangerous for the government to kind of take the position that it does during some of these issues. It's not because the government doesn't have any role to play. For instance, I thought it made a lot of sense when we restricted travel, uh, international mm -hmm. travel, especially sure. from China, right? And, and I, thought it, I thought, even though that was racist and mean, um, and then I thought, it, I thought it made a lot of sense initially for the military to be deployed, to be able to say, yeah, the National Guard deployed, they set up yeah. these mass hospitals, like you said before, in order to deal with overflow. But then when it that didn't get then used. when it wasn't needed. Yeah. But then at the same time you got people like, you know, Cuomo pushing people back into nursing homes. Yes. And, and the argument was, well, they, they've got no place to stay. I'm like, yeah. well, no, that's that would have been a good use for your mass hospitals. That would have been a good use for some of these other uh, other things rather than pushing them right back into this environment. But um well, look, I, I want to, there's, there's two other things I want to get to here. Um, one is being a nurse in the mission field. So mm -hmm. I remember when I was little, you took us to mm -hmm. the Philippines, you took us to Okinawa, you took us to Mexico. Yeah. I, the, the colonias had flooded really bad in yes. Tijuana. And uh, you, you brought um, JW and I down there with you. And we would kind of like entertain mm -hmm. the kids waiting yeah. in line and play games with them and stuff like that while they came in to, to site. So what was it? What was it like being a nurse in the mission field? And what were, what would you say were some of the, the most difficult conditions you've ever seen overseas? Oh boy. <clears throat> the abject poverty that you see um, when we were in the Philippines, average annual income, annual income was the equivalent of $300 yeah. for an entire year. These people just had to fight to keep from starving to death. And I think one of the most impactful things that we saw, and I remember you and your brother 
reacting to this was when they took us down to what they called Smoky Mountain in yeah. Manila. Now, if you ever saw Slumdog Millionaire, and they show people living in these massive garbage dumps, trying to live there, trying to find bits and pieces of something they could actually eat or something that they could um, so. trade off, like a Coke bottle or whatever, get a couple pennies for you know, or whatever the currency, um, to buy a handful of rice just to survive. And when we were in uh, Manila, I believe they said that the population in Smoky Mountain was somewhere around 100,000 people. It was it was huge. Oh, in Manila? In Manila, it was. In Manila. Smoky, Smoky Mountain, I think they said, I, it was, I can't remember how many thousands of families they said yeah. there were. They didn't have an accurate count, but it was, it, it was, was yeah. It was a lot. And and it was I I also seem to recall them talking about they had various plans to kind of like relocate people and put them in like basically their their yeah. their version of affordable housing. Yeah. And people didn't want to leave because it was the source of their income. Yeah. They they had no income. Yeah. And um there was I remember you and your brother reacting because there's the garbage spilled out into the ocean tons and tons of garbage the kids were out there swimming in it yeah and i remember the looks on your faces and one of you grabbed my arm and just tightly and said mom look they're swimming in it yeah and it was it was really um really a tragic situation the group that we were with was actually trying to work with the government to bring clean water and and vaccinations yeah. to the people, you know, the kind of vaccinations that yeah, smallpox, polio, yes, yes, yeah, that were yeah. that were proven, yeah. you might say, to yeah. prevent uh, life threatening diseases and things. So um, that that was some of the the wonderful things that that group did. They also that group was working with young girls that had been in many situations sent by their families down to work in the. Uh, Bordellos, yeah, the brothels. Yeah, yeah the brothels. Um, and that was a sad situation. Some of these girls were very young. Mm -hmm. And uh, what our group was trying to do was go in there and kind of rescue these girls out of, you know, sex trafficking, basically, yeah. and teach them how to be seamstresses and, and give them jobs. And they had an, uh, they'd been taught how to like make wedding dresses. And there was an outlet, I think, over in Europe that they had for these. And, you know, some people might look at that and say, oh, all you did was create a sweatshop or something. But it's like, no, what, what the group was creating, you know, they didn't just come in there and say, hey, receive Jesus and, yeah. you know, go, you know, be filled and healed and walk yeah. away. Yeah. <laughs> they were creating a way for these people to actually support themselves yeah. um, in a reasonable fashion on the income on the uh, economy yeah. that existed in that country at that time, yeah. in that time and place. And that's what people sometimes don't understand. Oh, you might go, well, we want to shut that down. It's a sweatshop. Well, no, it might be the only source of income they have other than prostitution. And um, they were actually working with these gals to get them a reasonable, you know, decent living wage and get them out of sex trafficking. Yeah. And also it was, it was a really wonderful group that we had gone with. Um, we ended up way up in the mountains working yeah. with uh, with people that lived up in a tiny village that we had to hike into. And uh, that <laughs> well, was I remember great, I, great experience. I was watching one of these list channels on YouTube and, you know, it'd be like top most yeah. dangerous, like rivers or top most. And then one was the top most dangerous roads. <laughs> and I'm watching it with Tina. I'm like, 
oh my God, <laughs> my, my mom, brother and I were on that road in the Philippines and in, in Luzon. And yeah, it was like the highest point on the Filipino freeway system. And yeah. I remember like riding on the top of a jeepney for part of it. <laughs> I remember being on some kind of bus or some one, one direction or the other yeah. going across that bridge and looking down and it was like, oh Lord, <laughs> please. Yeah. Get us through this. Yeah. I can't promise to be a missionary. I already am one. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it was uh, quite an experience. And the people were just so loving and yeah. so dear that we went and worked with. And it, yeah. it was a, a, a great, great experience. Well, let, let's, let's, um, the last thing I wanted to talk about is, you know, we, we talk a lot about self-reliance uh, on the show and we talk a lot about mm-hmm. people that, you know, being more resilient and, and the, mm-hmm. uh, the idea of mm-hmm. it's not about, it's not about isolating yourself in the middle of nowhere, not having it. It's just about yeah. having, having skills, knowing what you should you know be able to do. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we have fun with it. You know, we, we joke around about zombie apocalypse and things like that, but <laughs> bottom line is you it's never coming. know when you're, yeah, a, a skill set, which might be a skill set, which might be really, really valuable for really, really bad <laughs> situations is still valuable. If you're going hiking with your family, exactly right. On Shenandoah national park and, and you're, you're miles away, right? Yeah. You might be camping. You might find yourself in a situation that you didn't anticipate dissipate, you know, all of a sudden you're, you you know, somebody falls down and they get bit by a snake or whatever it is. So what I want to do now is I want to talk a little bit about like, what are, um, what are some of the medical skills that are fairly easy to, to learn, right? That everybody should know. know. Yeah. Like what, what are, what's, what's like, give me a top three or so. Yeah. Probably the number one, I would encourage everyone go take a CPR class, go get CPR certified. They will teach you the proper way to do it. Um, what's most important. It's, it's a relatively easy thing to do. And I just think that that is incredibly valuable. Um, so I would really recommend that one. First of all, we had a situation where we were, we were eating, um, we were out eating and Allie, uh, Allie was, she was really little at the time, but she started choking on uh, a piece of like mozzarella stick Yes. And I, I'm sitting, I'm sitting at one part of the table and then I look over and I see Tina first and Tina's just like, you know, pointing over at Allie and Allie's choking. So I got up there and I, and did the Heimlich real quick and it, you know, that kicked out. And, uh, yeah. and then I went over and I sat down and I just started eating again. And, <laughs> and, and Tina did this long post about like, this is one of the reasons why I love my husband and he makes me feel safe and he makes our kids feel safe. And I remember thinking like, I remember my mom teaching me how to do this when I was little, mainly because like I'd choke on a hot dog or something and, you know, but, um, that's another guys, that's another reason how to learn not only do CPR, but like the Heimlich maneuver and stuff like that is because women find it super impressive when you jump up in a, in a situation. (laughs) 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 All right. So CPR. It's a great way to pick up chicks, right? Yeah. yeah. So CPR, Heimlich Uh, maneuver. What's another? Uh, another thing is, uh, stop the bleeding. Okay. Yeah. If someone is injured, regardless, a, a knife wound, gunshot wound, fall down, yeah. you know, it can be just about anything. And uh, they've got either a cut or a gash or a, uh, a large abrasion. It could be a number of things. Stopping the bleeding is an important one. And the main thing you do is just apply direct pressure. Okay. Uh, that's probably the most Im- important, most basic thing that you can do until you can get to a healthcare facility, a higher level of care to where they're going to be able to, um, stitch it up or whatever's needed, cauterize, um, 
And it just depends, like where where you are, how far you are from a facility that can can help you with that. Yeah, you know, you might be out in the woods hunting, and somebody's gun goes off unexpectedly, or um, their knife. You know, they, they get a knife wound, or they f- <laughs> fall down. Yeah, you know, yeah, uh, and uh, they get you know cut pretty badly on a rock or something. Then um, you would need to know how to do that. You might need to know how to close the wound. You might be able to take something stretchy and wrap it around an arm or a a leg or, or something. Yeah. I remember it, it was funny. Um, when I first went into the military, there was, obviously they took us through and I went through EMT training at the mm-hmm. time. So I was an EMTB for a while, EMT basic. And, uh, it, it was interesting how initially I went in in 98 mm-hmm. and there was all these assessments that you did yeah. for, and then by the time I was going to Iraq, it was stop the bleeding. Like that is your number one thing. Stop yeah. the bleeding. Because if you could get them, we, we found that if we could stop the bleeding or we could slow it significantly yeah. and we could get them to a field hospital, it was something like a, a 90% survival rate. Yeah. I mean, it was crazy. Um, but if they bled out, there was just nothing you could nothing do. More you could do. And the, the, yeah. the things they would, they would focus us on is uh, like packing the wound, um, and you got to figure we're not, I mean, obviously infection is always a, a concern, but the thing they emphasize to us is that it is, <laughs> you're not worried about infection if they bleed out. Right. And, and so stop the wound and they would have us, they, of course they gave us like, we had little packs where we could put like sanitary cloth in there and pack it to try to reduce mm-hmm. infection. But if you're in a really bad situation and stuff's going off and there's dust in the air and everything else, I mean, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the applying a tourniquet. And that was one thing that, you know, a tourniquet they, they said was kind of a last, uh, last resort because you got a tourniquet applied too long. You're losing something, right? right. That limb's coming off. But mm-hmm. if you had arterial bleeding, yeah, you're, you're, you're applying the tourniquet as best you can. So, so, yeah. so CPR, Heimlich, um, stop the bleeding. What, what's a, what's, what's one more, give us one more that would be just good to, good to know. When you said close up the wounds, like obviously not most, most of us don't know how to do stitches. Um, but right. if you had to do, if you had to do if something to close, had a, to close a yeah. wound, um, first of all, you're going to want to try to clean it the best you can. Yeah. You know, if, uh, you know, you've got a bottle of alcohol of some kind, probably not rubbing alcohol. It's yeah. some other kind of alcohol. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if I'm going camping mom, I probably don't have a yeah. lot of rubbing alcohol, yeah, but I might have not. some, uh, I might have not. some other. So if I've got, first, if you know, take a good swig yourself. <laughs> So does that really work though? Uh, if I've got, if, if all I've got is Jack Daniels, if all I've got is Jack Daniels, is that still better know. to put on the wound than nothing It'll wash it out. I don't okay. know if it'll do anything to sterilize it <laughs> to tell you the honest truth. All right. But um, you want to stop the bleeding. You yeah. want to try to close the wound. Um, if you have needle and thread, I mean, you could try to do just a simple stitch to close the wound yeah. um, or Super applying glue. direct pressure yeah. to a wound is another way. Um, splinting, you know, if there's a broken bone and there's bleeding, yeah, you can apply, use almost anything that's re- reasonably straight and wrap to try to splint a wound, uh, splint a uh, bone and, uh, and stop the bleeding. Yeah. Now what so, about airway? What if I got to do a, um, what if I got to do a trach? Okay. Well, <laughs> Watch a video. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they taught it. They taught us how to. They they taught yeah. us how to do that. Where it was, it was two things they were looking for because we were looking a lot of the stuff we were talking about was GSWs, right? Gunshot wounds. Yeah. And so it was if you had the the uh, chest cavity filling up with air and you needed to relieve it, they were like, okay, you want to go to the third, third and fourth intercostal space, mm-hmm. and that's where you would you would stab yeah. in to allow for the air to release, so it didn't it didn't 
crush your lungs and yeah. basically suffocate you and pray. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing with like where to, where to go in in order to, to, to yeah. clear up the airway. But again, we're, we're not saying go and try this on your buddy right yeah. now. We're just saying Don't survival. Don't try this yourself at home. Yeah. All right. And now the, the last yeah. question I want to ask emergency situation again, for the guys out there that uh, want to look mm. cool, just get your wife to the hospital in time to have the baby. But <laughs> all right. But as promised at the beginning of the show, all right, I, I am, I am, I'm there. <laughs> I'm with my wife. We are we are driving. We live out in the country because you know screw the city and mm-hmm. and oh my oh my gosh she's she's going into labor two weeks earlier than anticipated mm-hmm. and as we're as we're taking the 45 minute drive to the hospital, baby's coming in the back seat and again all I've got is is me mm-hmm. my trusty pocket knife. ACDC's greatest hits and a <laughs> bottle of water. How am I delivering this kid in the back of the car, mom? This actually happened to my cousin. Oh my yeah. gosh. Okay. All right. She very successfully had a baby in wow. the backseat of a car on the way to the hospital. So ACDC's dirty deeds done dirt cheap. Yeah. And- <laughs> I don't think they were listening to oh, that. Okay. All right. So, but how, how, how would, what are, what are the basics you need to know for the scared young father trying to catch a baby or for the scared young mother that did not anticipate this, this was not in the what to expect when you're okay. expecting, but. True. Right. Honestly, if the baby's coming that quick and easy, they kind of deliver themselves. Really? Just about. They, okay. If they're coming out that, that quick and that fast, um, they just come right out usually. Um, you know, this, you know, in a car, it's a little awkward because of the positioning. If you know that you're not going to make it, you probably want her in the back seat yeah. of the car, you know, just, just get out and get in the back seat. Um, what you're going to do is you are hopefully going to see ahead first. Yeah. If you don't, then just, just keep going to the hospital. Okay. Probably, but you're probably going to see ahead first. And then what you're going to do is you're going to actually like bring the head down so that the upper shoulder will will come out from under the pubic bone and deliver. Then you lift up, and then the lower shoulder will hopefully slip out. Yeah. And then put the baby wet and messy. Yeah. Right up on the mom. Try to dry the baby off, and um, just put them up there, skin to skin with the mom. Wrap them up. You want to keep the baby as warm as possible. You want you don't want that baby to get cold. And it's like when you step out of the shower all wet, you're going to get cold immediately. Yeah. So you want to try to dry them off, put them skin to skin with the mom, wrap them up with anything you've got, you know, your coat, your shirt, Yeah. <laughs> you know, the mom's shirt, anything you have. So and what is so important about skin to skin contact with the mom? For one thing, it's calming to the baby. Okay. It's a very calming thing. If the other thing is that the body heat from the mother helps keep the baby warm. Yeah. Um, I mean, you it don't makes have sense. to worry. Yeah. I know I, I like to be skin to skin contact with my kid's mom. That's <laughs> <laughs> what, okay, so, <laughs> I'm not supposed to be making these jokes with my mom. Okay. So, <laughs> hey, I've been a nurse for 45 yeah. years. Yeah, I got not the, a whole lot I didn't, that I didn't get, can shock me. These I didn't days. get the talk from dad. Yeah. I got the talk from mom. And when your yeah. mom's an OB nurse, the talk is, I, yeah. I imagine, different than when most most yeah. boys got. But okay, so when you, so the baby's baby's delivered. So I, huh. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to cut the umbilical cord. I'm not trying to do no. Any of you that. don't want to cut it, but um, oftentimes the placenta will deliver relatively quickly afterwards. Okay. So usually you have enough cord, yeah. you could bring it out and tie it in a tight knot. Both sides get, or one side? Just just one tight knot. Okay. Yeah, because you're not going to cut it. 
you're just going to get to the hospital at that point. Okay. And um, then the reason why you don't cut it is because baby or mommy can bleed out from that, right? Right. You don't want to just cut the cord. Yeah. It's got to be clamped off, but yeah. you're not going to have cord clamps with you probably in the car. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> so you just want to tie it in a good, tight, tight knot. Okay. And then if the placenta delivers, it delivers. Okay. Um, but, but if then, it doesn't, it's okay to stay in there if I'm driving? Yeah. If you're on the way to the hospital, hopefully you're not too far away. Okay. What happens if I'm snowed in at the cabin? So now it's like, I do got to, I got to get, I got to get a couple of zip ties and like <laughs> zip ties, thread, a little piece of cloth or okay. whatever, and um, go a little, you know, closer to the baby's umbilical, you know, where the umbilical Belly button. cord attaches. Yeah. yeah. And um, tie that off so that the blood can't back out. And then okay. you'll, you know, then what I would say is like kind of strip it away from the baby a little bit, yeah. tie another knot and cut it right there. Okay. Okay. Now, and then, hopefully your placenta is delivering now how, uh, how relatively do I, quickly. When the placenta comes out, then you want to go in right about by the mother's uh, belly button, <laughs> by the umbilicus. And um, you're going to want to massage that. You're going to want to rub it, not in front, but like literally the top of it. Okay. So you're going to go down in. And, and yeah. rub that. That helps the uterus to clamp down and tighten down and helps control the bleeding because there's a lot of bleeding that goes on yeah. after that placenta detaches and comes out. And when the placenta so, delivers, you're going to know it, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. You'll know it. Okay. She'll know it. <laughs> too. Okay. It's pretty obvious. It's pretty good sized. Okay. And, uh, and don't eat it, you weirdos. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> People that eat the placenta, like, oh my God. If you got to do something, go plant it by a tree. Right. Yeah, maybe. But like, you're basically (laughs) eating your kid's clone. It's weird. Don't do that. Don't do that. (laughs) There are people that do. Yeah. Don't, don't appropriate cannibal culture. All right. And there's people that want to take their placenta home with them. Here you go. (laughs) We did it. It's all yours. We're like, that's yours. That's your, that's a special gift we left for the hospital. (laughs) Yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> all right. All right. So, so, so it, if, if you can get to the hospital, get to the hospital. If you can't get to the hospital, deliver the baby, dry off the baby, make sure like, you know, yeah, you can the sweep, baby the, dry sweep the airway if they're not. Yeah. You know, okay. Yeah. You know, but skin to skin. So baby's crying now, skin to skin contact with mom, mm-hmm. mom's in the back seat. I haven't, you know, and at that point, I'm not cutting the umbilical cord. I'm, I'm 20 minutes from the hospital. I'm just going to get to the hospital and let them take care of that there. Yeah, but tie a knot in it. But tie a knot in it. Okay. Tie a knot and hang on. <laughs> All right. But if, I, but if I'm snowed in at the cabin, mm-hmm. I'm going to get some threads, some ropes, and whatever I can. I'm going to tie it mm-hmm. close to the baby's belly button. Pretty and close, then, yeah. And then what, like a couple inches? Yeah, then leave another couple inches, tie it off cut, again. And cut And there. cut it, yeah. You and better tie it off on both ends because then when you, if otherwise, when you cut it, yeah. um, it's going to make quite a mess. Okay. So, you know. Yeah. You know, tie it off, uh, yeah. you know, an, maybe an inch away from the baby and then go a couple inches, kind of strip the blood toward the placenta away yeah. from the baby yeah. after this has been clamped. Yeah. Tie that off and then cut in between. And now you're you're going to prevent some of the mess. <laughs> okay. And then the placenta will deliver. And then it's just about kind of monitoring yeah. to make sure mom's doing okay, baby's yeah. doing okay. And, and that's that's in a I- fairly ideal situation. The placenta yeah. delivers and all that. Okay. Uh, we won't go into other emergencies Alrighty. at that point. <laughs> all right. Well, good news. If you listen to this segment, you are now an OB nurse. That's right. That's <laughs> oh, all. Oh, no. <laughs> there is a lot more to it than that. No way. All righty. All right. It turns out there are some more things you have to do. So don't go rushing yeah. out. Don't go rushing out telling pregnant women, you can deliver their baby to try to look cool guys. All right. It's just, it's not, it's It's not not a good way to impress your girlfriend No, (laughs) (laughs) or anybody. Yeah. All right. 
Well, well, mom, thanks very much for coming on and, and sharing, sharing <laughs> some stories with here. us. Oh no, it's been, it's been a blast. Uh, hopefully you have learned a lot. Again, we're not, we're not telling you to go out and try this at, at home, but if you ever do find yourself in a survival situation, now you know the skills that you should get ahead of time, right? Go learn CPR, go learn the Heimlich maneuver, learn how to, you know, effectively stop bleeding. And, um, Again, don't if if you're if you were wife is about to give birth, like you're a couple weeks out, maybe hold off the camping trip. But <laughs> yeah. if you just insisted that, like, if she just needed to go camping, and then all of a sudden, now at least you know a couple of things that you can do either on the car raid there or in the Snowden cabin. Although that's not ideal, we're not advocating this, right? This is an ad- advocacy for that. Uh, but once again, thank you all very much for joining us. I hope everyone is having a great Christmas season with yeah. their families. Thank you once again to Good Ranchers uh, for sponsoring this. Um, Again, it, it would be hard to do this show if we didn't have sponsors like Good Ranchers that were willing to come in and uh, and advertise with us. And so if you are looking, they got some great deals going on. Go to GoodRanchers.com. Use promo code Nick. Uh, some of those deals go all the way to December 31st. All right. Oh, wow. so, so check that out. But once again, thank you very much for joining us. And we'll see you next episode. 